Welcome to the Legal Update podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Adam North, and today I am joined by Ludo again. Uh, we are a couple days late, which is uh, due to some scheduling problems on both of our sides, so we do apologise for that. And unfortunately, we don't have any guests today, but you're uh, you're in very safe hands, Ludo, as usual. Uh, today, as normal, we'll be speaking about one deal and then a piece of litigation that we'll be focusing on and really pulling out the uh, commercial awareness points um, particularly in an application context. So the first one, it will go as usual, we'll speak about our deal, which is the DuPont $2.3 billion deal. Ludo, do you want to give us more than that, just headline and uh, talk about uh, this chemicals deal? Yeah, thank you, Adam. Uh, so as you said, this is a deal by this chemicals giant company called DuPont, who has announced that it's agreed to buy Laird Performance Materials, who is a company that's focused on the technology sector. And as we mentioned, this is a valued at $2.3 billion. So a really massive deal. On this um, story, we've got Skadden is advising DuPont and Whale is advising Laird. So as as we said, it's a deal that focuses entirely on this sort of rising sector in the technology uh, area and industry. So the combined entity will specialize particularly in stuff like autonomous vehicles, 5G telecommunications, and artificial intelligence. So these have been major buzzwords in the past years. It's something that a lot of people and investors are looking forward to. So very interesting deal in that sense too. And as we said, these are massive corporations. They employ over 4,000 people and operate around the globe in most continents. And they have you know, huge revenues of 465 million just for the past year. So a very interesting deal to keep an eye on and something that I think in the future we'll hear more about, definitely. Yeah, I agree. It's something we've talked about a little bit already is obviously, and I think you'd be, if you were on a commercial awareness platform and not talking about the growth of technology, you'd be doing something wrong. Um, something that I found really interesting was that this isn't DuPont's first kind of foray away from chemicals into a, into another sector. They've already got an existing kind of electronic and industrial business unit, but this is obviously a deal that's worth $2.3 billion is uh, is a significant um, growth opportunity for DuPont and a, and a significant outlay. But it'll be interesting to see, obviously, with lead performance materials being at the very kind of front end and uh, at the coalface of the tech market with the likes of 5G communications, AI, autonomous vehicles, as you mentioned before, um, it's a real opportunity to, I think, if you wanted to talk about a deal like this, is really talk about emerging sectors, as I'd like to call them within the tech sector. I think you've got the tech sector, which now has often traditionally be seen as such a kind of forward thinking modern sector. But I think that's entirely true. However, there's almost a new part of technology now that I would call emerging tech that's even more groundbreaking. The likes of autonomous vehicles, which aren't necessarily common practice now, but you can get autonomous vehicles in certain parts of the world. They're being tested in California and the like, and I think they will grow. Um, and obviously 5G, there's the whole uh, kind of conspiracy claims about 5G, but I don't think we'll get too much into that. But it's really talking about looking at giants like DuPont um, who have traditional strengths in different sectors and different business services, really looking at their opportunity to kind of accelerate growth by either expanding into sectors that are similar or expanding into sectors that are related um, and it goes into the point that I always seem to make on these podcasts of kind of interrelatedness of sectors. Um, the chemical sector will 
obviously intersect with the tech sector and and that's probably the opportunities that the pont are really looking at um and and kind of looking to expand <laughs> um i don't know if you have any other port thoughts on kind of that development into tech and other companies that are kind of doing the same thing ludo yeah no i mean i obviously agree with what you said there it's a huge sector and i mean what i always think is like uh, say 20 years ago what the technology sector was back then yeah what it's now it's a I mean, it's an impressive growth. It's something that potentially I've seen the amount of change even in day-to-day technology, you know, stuff like computers. I mean, what Apple was 20 years ago is not what it is now, for example. And if we apply this sort of thinking to new sectors, like you said, the autonomous vehicles and stuff like 5G, which I think will be a major game changer, and it's already doing, you know, huge changes around the world, but it's not fully implemented yet. So imagine once that's all everyone that can access 5g that will be you know a huge change and these companies they see this potential and that's why you know these big players are investing in these sectors and also another point which i think we can touch on is the fact that um, obviously the entity that was bought in this case was actually owned by a private equity firm yeah uh, which was advent international and i think that's a, another interesting trend which uh, i would highlight and advise our listeners to consider in interviews sort of the the growing presence of private equity firms in these growing sectors the way they anticipate these trends and are able to enter them and hold major positions in these rising companies to either monetize them as in this case or build them up to you know increase their profits and build a recurring revenue in that sort of sense so i don't know if you had any thoughts on on this trend too Adam. yeah i have got kind of a couple of points i think on the on the private equity side it's a really interesting development and i think it's taught it's testament to the real establishment of technology as a sector that's very profitable and very well entrenched now i think often probably more so in the past technology would kind of be seen as the sector for vc firms and vc funds kind of obviously a little bit more startup-y, a bit more entry-level, there's less cash kind of injected. The risk is a lot higher, but the percentage is a lot higher. And that's more of a testament now that we're looking at, private equity is obviously booming in London and across the globe anyway at the moment. I think um, off of the back of the the pandemic, it was almost a perfect storm for private equity firms. Kind of, They were keeping their powder dry before the pandemic, had a lot of excess capital to spend. And now this is obviously going the other way, being a buy side PE deal, uh, sell side PE deal, sorry. But private equity firms were prior to March last year, really ready to to start spending aggressively. The pandemics happened. There was less investment. There was a a big drop in in all sectors generally uh, or across all sectors. There were drops, but um, the private equity sector has kind of been sat on all this ready to spend capital and lines of credit that, they've now been able to spend and that that's showing why off the back of back end of last year and, and continuing to this year, the private equity sector is booming. But I think a little bit more of a nuanced point then that's easy to tell that the private equity is doing really well. I think if you were talking about something like this, that point of private equity firms now actually seeing uh, the tech sector as a real opportunity to either divest or invest um, or increase kind of their own shareholdings or to sell to make a profit is is testament to the growth and continual growth of tech to now be a real entrenched sector, kind of along the lines of financial services and banking and law firms. That, that a tech is really established now. You've got kind of your tech big four and 
um, it's a, a really interesting one. I think one point that I had to make on this before we move on to the to the next story is this is also a deal if uh, where it's actually it's a cost based mechanism. I think I read that uh, Dupont are actually looking to reduce their costs in this area. And that's a massive part right now. I think profits are generally are, are down across the border in a lot of different companies. Obviously, some are up. But that ability to kind of create economies of scale and take over if you've got the capital to do so or can get the financing to do so, to take over companies that maybe suppliers or maybe customers or work in interrelated services and goods is an opportunity for businesses to really reduce costs by kind of employing common commonalities across both businesses. Um, so it's not always necessarily, it's always looking for opportunity, but it may not be looking for a bigger market share or a bigger customer base or bigger profits as, or, or bigger revenues as such. It can often be a cost reducing exercise and $60 million a year is a significant cost reducing exercise um, for any business. And therefore it's a bit of a no brainer and, and it obviously does make sense. Um, do you have any points to add on that, Luda, before we move on to the, uh, the next story? No, I, I agree with that point. Uh, it's it's very important whenever there's a you know in current situation that a lot of business, businesses are struggling to identify and show your commerciality also in that sense rather than always focusing on all the stuff that's going well. It's also a matter of figuring out where companies can cut their costs. Yeah, and obviously enhance their profits. And no, yeah, I think it's just a, a little bit more nuanced than going. Oh, private equity is really busy. Yeah, because that's easy to tell. And what what interviewers will be looking for is that you can go that little bit further and you can understand, okay, why is it busy? Oh, it's busy because they had lots of capital ready, but pandemic meant they couldn't spend it. And then you kind of develop, oh, they're also going into tech as it's more of an established, it's a much more nuanced, stronger, developed yes. answer than, oh yeah, private equity is really busy because a lot of companies lost a lot of money. So there's there's lots of opportunities out there in, in the market because of the pandemic. Although that's kind of where you're going at, you're getting a lot deeper into the roots of the problem. Um, and the roots of kind of the the commercial issue involved. Um, yeah, yeah should we move on to the next one, which is uh, an insurance claim in the High Court um, that actually involves PPI, which a lot of people will have heard PPI of being missold in the kind of early noughties and so. And it's interesting to see that PPI claims, in somewhat sense, are still kind of uh, relevant today. I thought I think a lot of people who are um, kind of in their 30s and above, kind of don't really want to hear about PPI and don't really care anymore. But um, obviously, do you want to talk us through this in insurance claim? I suppose it is at the crux of it, Ludo. Yes, yes. I'll try to sort of cover the basics without <laughs> making it too complicated. Because always when you talk about insurance, it can delve into a bit of complications. Mm. Um, so, yeah, basically, as you said, this is a case relating to this sort of insurance. And it was started back in the 14th of January when we had the sort of PA, which was a subsidiary of Royal and Sun Alliance Insurance, who sued Sinia in the High Court. And it did this to recover 18.4 million pounds that it paid out uh, sort of in redress to next customers, as well as 18.3 million in complaint handling fees. And as you said, the sort of core part of this claim is that PA assented under our 1991 master agreement to make payments to Next for death, disablement, or unemployment of customers who bought the PPI, when particularly when taking out store cards with Next. Um, as we said, PA was a subsidiary of Royal Southern Alliance, which we'll refer to as RSA, and it was sold 
2 Resolution Life Limited in 2004. Meanwhile, Senior was established under a management buyout of RSA in 2003. And the management buyout, just to clarify, is when basically the management team of a company decides to buy the buyout, you know, the company, take, yeah, to take ownership yeah. of the company. Yeah, exactly. Um, an interesting point is that the agreement, uh, so the, the master agreement we referred to, had this clause that senior would indemnify RSA and its group against any liabilities that PA might suffer for these assets it was holding for senior, including for any wrongly sold products. Now, that was we just, we just pick that apart a bit first, just to, to interject, because there's a yes. lot of corporate entities there. Yeah. There's a lot to follow and appreciate that kind of on an audio format, that's not necessarily the easiest. So I think what's essentially happened is um, uh, PA was a subsidiary of RSA, which was, Signa was formed out of, and then Signa were uh, PA owned uh, PA owned Next, which also owned Signa. Am I correct? Then? No. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I've got, I've yeah, got it. And they were missold. It's related <laughs> to, uh, to therefore this master agreement and the clause in the agreement, inserting that Signa would indemnify RSA, um, and therefore being a subsidiary of RSA, PA are looking to Signa to pay pay the redress of the. 18.3 and, and 18.4 million. Um, and there we go. That's kind of a quick crutch. Do you want to run through the quick kind of defense that I know you're going to talk about that Signa have uh, have mentioned? Yeah, yes. The defense, we've literally just uh, seen it, I think, past week, uh, which was filed by Signa, as you said. And it basically said that the business transfer agreement did not move the PPI master agreement or any individual policy to senior, which basically wouldn't take responsibility for this. Obviously, it doesn't want to be liable for these payments. Um, it also said in its defense that it did not, as I said, it did not take over PA's liability to pay for the wrongly sold cover known as the PPI. And it's yeah, it's basically <laughs> saying, look, this is not our thing to pay kind of thing. And on the other side, we've obviously got PA who you know wants to recover the all the money and the millions of pounds that they've spent on covering these. I things. think one thing that's really uh, really valuable to pull out is is and it's not even necessarily more of kind of a commercial or a legal point is that this is a really good example of what the real world is actually like. Um, I think when you're studying law or you're doing your GDL or you're doing your LPC, you often you're given these scenarios, but often they're just not real because they're so simple. Uh, I think this is one of the things that if you can understand kind of the commercial elements of a complex story like this and vocalize them and get them across in an application or an interview, it shows that you're able to think at a more complex level. And it's still the same. You're still employing the same skills and uh, using the same kind of analytical mind that you've developed to analyze legal problems or analyze scenarios. It depends how you learn or what, what stage you're at. It's just being able to piece it together in a bit more of a complex situation. Um, and then really kind of, so try and that's why I kind of said, let's try and slim it down. If you can slim it down to the simplest situation, you'll find it a hell of a lot easier to pull out the uh, commercial commercial elements of, of it because you're not dealing with numbers, tons of different kind of cooperation names or anything like that. If you almost do it, company A, company B, company C, company D, and then break out all of the names, you'll be able to understand it a lot better. And that's almost just kind of a tactic for if you were given a problem or wanted to pull something about that's, part, that's quite complex, 
but I wouldn't necessarily always push yourself to the most complex element of the uh, next deal kind of yeah. you can find if you're asked to speak about something as there will be complex deals that even lawyers who are qualified for a couple of years are going to take a while to get their head around and you want to be able to kind of speak coherently even if it's something that's really simple if you can speak coherently about it it's going to come across a lot better than you bringing a really complex story that actually you don't really know what you're talking about and you've got a stab and you've got the gist of it but if you've gone for something a bit simpler it might have been easier that's just kind of an interjection of there and i know that's something we were going to talk about was kind of the complexity of legal issues and that it is really complex beyond it's not always a textbook scenario yeah, no, exactly. I think clarity is such an important skill for lawyers and in general for the business. Yeah, and trying to so simplify it down often on. makes you yeah. make, allows you to find that clarity. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So just, as Adam said, yeah, I completely agree with that. Bring it down to the core basics, and from that, develop up your your mm. thoughts. Because simplifying and showing the and talking about in an interview situation, showing the interviewer. That you know you have a clear grasp of what's going on is much better than throwing around complex terms just to sort of sound professional. Yeah, that and sense. it comes that point that I know was actually touched on on the clubhouse that we did. And if you didn't get to watch yeah. the clubhouse, we're doing another one soon. We're going to do a series of them on kind of interview tips and things like that. And so it's definitely one to uh, to keep aware of. Look on the Instagram, and you'll be able to find details of it when they're happening. Mm-hmm. Is not using those buzzwords necessarily kind of speaking in plain english speaking in your own terms you don't need to use big convoluted words in order to sound like you know what you're talking about a lot of the time you'll talk yourself around in a circle and you actually not answer the question and it was a piece of advice that was given to me was uh if you kind of take that minute or 30 seconds or a sip of water in an interview and formulate what you want to say and say less you'll do better in the interview because if you keep talking, you'll end up talking yourself out of your answer. And at the end of the day, the person who's probably going to be interviewing you may well be the likelihood is they're either a senior associate or a partner or uh, a council level, they're a a high level. They're going to be able to work out that you're talking in circles probably before you are because they're trained to make sure you don't do that. They're trained to speak very clearly, provide clear advice. So um, being kind of coherent and concise is, is so important and don't kind of overcomplicate it for yourself because you're just giving yourself a drawback to that you kind of have to fight past. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's it's something that's really evidenced in a story like this if you are presented with something this complicated with so many little details, so many different entities. Yeah, just literally kind of boil it regulated down aspect simple. of the financial or conduct authorities involved and the ombudsman's involved, and it starts to to get really hard to. To kind of analyze so my advice would be don't necessarily unless you're really passionate about ppi and ppi insurance and kind of ppi claims and can really vocalize that and it's not only that you like next and you're passionate about retail if you can really identify the story and get to the crux of it by all means choose a story like this but don't choose a complex story for the sake of choosing a complex story would be my main piece of advice should we kind of get back in is there much to really say more on the story i think it's just kind of identifying i think one thing you wanted to touch on was that the being able to identify the risks and obviously that's a lot easier to do kind of after the fact and now that we're talking about a story that's going through litigation and but it's kind of those points of and it's something that you could really pull up in an interview i think that if you talk about kind of how the lawyer who actually is holding the pen and is drafting the agreement they need to almost be thinking about litigation and the likelihood is well 
guaranteed they're not a litigation associate. They'll be some form of commercial contracts or corporate associate, but they need to be thinking holistically and thinking about the risks of litigation and about the uh, liabilities that they're putting the client under or the firm under, it depends what they're dealing with, um, when drafting this piece of uh, legislation. And I think if you can pull that out in an interview, that'll go very far because a lot of firms are very keen about kind of connectedness across practices. And it's probably not something a lot enough lawyers think about. Yeah, yeah, I, I highlight that point. And I think in, if you were to sort of refer to the story, it's really important to consider that clause mm. we referred to before of how one side thinks it means it's indemnifying uh, RSA and instead, obviously, the defence. So Senior thinks that the true position is that instead all the economic benefits and burdens remain with RSA regardless of that <laughs> drafting of that clause. So it's a bit, obviously, it's a claim in high court so there's arguments to both sides and it's always interesting to see how two different parties identify as, as you know the same clause with different arguments depending on obviously what their clients and are intending. And I guess that's kind of the that's kind of the beauty of litigation and that's something I think about being yeah. a disputes lawyer is you're not you've got kind of got to think from the other side's perspective and be able to discredit them just as much as you can kind of back up your own story as well. So um, and that's something to, to definitely identify that's really interesting about disputes. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story. But I think we've gone a bit wider on this episode. Yeah, but I, I do think <laughs> it's been a very useful exercise about kind of making sure it's, a lot of time this will circle around that question of tell me about a story that you've been following, why it's interesting to us and why it's interesting to you. And there's so much to be said for choosing the right story. Um, I think that probably goes further than your analysis of the story. If you can really choose the right story and obviously identify the commercial elements and, uh, and the legal elements and things like that, it doesn't have to be a super complex story. It can be simple and your analysis will be what's really valuable. Um, and I, as I've kind of said before, I think there's always more commercial strands to pull out of any story um, if you really interrogate it hard enough. Yeah, I'm going to say that's a that's a great line to end on. So uh, I think we might have to, to call it a day with that one. Thank you again, Ludo, for uh, for joining me. Remember to check out the legal update, and as I said, be aware of any clubhouse series that we are um, rooms that we will be putting up on a regular basis. That will go to the different stages of the application and interview process for training contracts and back schemes, and um, and did little bits of advice with uh, with help from guests and friends along the way. So uh, you can go to the Instagram uh, account to check that out and uh, we'll be widely publicizing it. So thank you again for listening and uh, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast.